It's the 8th of July 2014. This is the audio podcast, episode 121, Sushi Send Control. Yes, we're back. We had a week off, but um, that's Scott Hewitt. I'm Sam Freeman, and Adam Yant is here as well. And we have a special guest and a full of news and reviews and interviews with Plunder show this week. Indeed. In fact, today is probably one of the most varied shows that we may ever put on the audio podcast. Um, before we get started, don't forget you can uh, get the audio podcast through iTunes, Gpodder, Stitcher. There's probably another one there. I can never remember all of them. Uh, and you can contact us through uh, Twitter at the audio podcast or email. Uh, that's show at the audio podcast.co.uk. Um, and what about the notes that we follow? You can get the, uh, this week's notes at theaudiopodcast.co.uk slash show slash 121, where you'll find all of the links and pictures of the things we're talking about and stuff like that, which is all good. But with no further ado, we should get straight into the interview. This week, we are greatly honored to be joined by uh, Samuel Vernberg, who is one of the uh, creators of the soon-to-be-announced Kickstarter, which is Tuna Knobs, but has already been making a whole load of noise um, as a really... It's a really great idea. So could you tell us a little bit, uh, Samuel, about what Tuna Knobs actually is? Um, Tuna Knobs is a way you can uh, control uh, music apps on an iPad. It is um, actually, the, it works the same way as a stylus, um, but the shape is different, allowing you to control, um, well, anything really, any um, music variable you could create, norm, uh, you could uh, automate normally, but then on a screen, on a touch screen, so you have the versatility uh, versatility of an iPad, but the, um, the controls of true hardware, that's the idea. And actually, yeah, I, I spotted this uh, last week, I think, um, and I don't know if you were already talking with Scott beforehand about coming on the show. Uh, and yeah, I was really fascinated by this stylus thing. So um, as I understand it, I suppose that this device sits on top of the screen of the device and it has like each knob has got a little thing that must touch the screen and and yeah. then you read that data in and convert it and do whatever so I, I think that's a really good idea I think that's a, a great way of transmitting the, the 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 motion sensing through to the device how, how um, I suppose I'm, I'm asking is how do you, how does one integrate that into a music app that they have already? Um, well, basically, since it's just a stylus, um, only the only thing a music app needs to do to incorporate tuner knobs into working is um, expect a certain touch. Um, and an, an app that already does that, for example, is TouchOSC, um, that just expects the right signals for tuner knobs to be used. Mm -hmm. So, um, OSC is ready out of the box. If, if, if our Kickstarter is successful and tuner knobs um, are going to be produced, then OSC will be compatible right out of the box. Um, but we're also in contact with a lot of other app developers to uh, broaden, of course, how many, uh, um, the, 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 the amount of apps we can serve with tuner knobs. And mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the big things that uh, happened last week, as we got a lot of attention, way more than we anticipated, uh, was that uh, the guys from Touchable, Zero Debug from Berlin, actually uh, uh, contacted us and said, well, we want uh, Tuna Knobs to be uh, working with uh, Touchable, so can you tell us how? And um, after a quick to and throw, the, uh, uh, their 
the next uh, installment of their uh, app will have Tuna Knob um, compatibility. Excellent. So yeah, that's going to be uh, that's going to be uh, really nice because the the, the Ableton community has really been. Uh, <laughs> we have got a lot of uh, um, uh, email from uh, from the Ableton community that they wanted to see Tuna Knobs compatible with Touchable. So yeah, that's mm. going to happen. Cool, excellent. That's excellent stuff. Now, how, how do the how, how do the tuner knobs like kind of affix to the kind of the, the iPad screen? How 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 does that actually work? Okay, so um, they're they're use uh, we use micro suction cups, um, really small um, at the base of the uh, knob, and they um, they suck onto your screen. They're uh, connected to a separate axis, so. Um, you can still freely turn the uh, the knob on the screen, and yeah, that's basically it. It's um, ridiculously simple, but it works. <laughs> I think that's why everybody's got so excited about it because it is so simple, and yet it's not yet been available. You got there first, and I think for compatibility, all that's required is that the software has the the dial on screen with the correct radius. Basically. Yeah, and it has to be. I guess it has to be in the right place. So yeah. I, I wonder. I mean, I wonder if that even means you need an SDK at all, or you can just say, okay, use a use a dial, and put it at this coordinate on the screen and this coordinate on the screen to line up with the the hardware underneath. Or I don't think. I think that you can put the. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you can put the um, suction cup on the dial anywhere on the screen. I think that's arbitrary. Yeah, um, oh, that's okay. also that's also what makes it really flexible. So if you, uh, for example. You're DJing um, with DB, the the zero debug app, um, and you're changing screens, uh, which means that your knobs are in a different place, your dials are in a different place. Um, you can just uh, pull the knob off your off of your screen, stick it on somewhere else, and it will work just the same. Um, so yeah, you're really I, flexible in that. I I I miss saw the the uh, the picture so yeah if uh, any listeners want to see a good picture you can head to the audiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash one two one and scroll down a bit and we've got a picture of what uh, it could be an iPad or something it's an iPad um, it's an iPad and yeah so you've got six I thought it was like a a, a bank of of knobs that st- stuck on in a group but so each one can actually just Stick on anywhere on the screen. Yes, yes. Oh, that's 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 really cool. So, um, as part of, a, do, would you sell a package of them? I suppose, like a set of six or a set of uh, four. Yes, yes. Uh, we're gonna go uh, um, tomorrow when we go live. You can buy one, three, or six, or even ten if you're like really enthusiastic about knobs. <laughs> and you've a big enough device for it all to fit in, I suppose. Well, they're actually they're actually quite small, so you, I think on an iPad you could definitely stick ten on there. So if if, if I could ask, just um, just as we're talking about this idea, so <laughs> the, is that photo is that photo an iPad Mini or a iPad? That is a full size iPad. That's it. Okay, so that's. So you, iPad Air, to, actually, iPad Air. It's an iPad Air. So you'll be able to fit five of them across the width of an iPad Air. I'm, I'm just saying that's going to give people a great indicator as to how, what size they are, because most people 
They're no, 22, mil <laughs> 22 millimeters uh, in diameter. So I think five is possible. If you get really tight, you could fit six on there. Yeah. And, and also, they don't have battery now. I guess they're just completely passive. They're completely passive. So also, they do not register uh, as touch when you do not touch them, uh, which means that uh, like for an upcoming update on iPad, you can only have 11 touch points uh, at the same time on a screen. But uh, Tuna Knobs doesn't even interfere with that number because it only works when you touch them. Yeah. Aha, OK, that's cool. So it's using the conductivity from the... Exactly, top. exactly. So um, we're, we're all incredibly enthusiastic about it, like the, the three of us. I think I can speak for us as in, that, in that way. I, I saw this and we immediately thought it was a great idea. But if, if um, as, not, as none of us have pretended not to be enthusiastic, could you try and... Why would somebody find this useful? Why, why, why do you think this is something that somebody might find useful if they're working with an iPad to do some audio? If you're working with an iPad to do audio, you're going to miss out on a lot of tactility. Um, you're going to miss out on a feel. You, can, you have to look at your screen all the time. Uh, you do not want that. At least I do not want that. That was uh, the main idea behind uh, Tuna Knobs is that I want to have physical controls. I want to have something that I can uh, sense with my fingers, get a, an actual feel for. Um, and I really miss that on touchscreens. Uh, and I mean, the response we've gotten so far is that I'm not the only one that misses that. So that's what Tuna Knobs wants to do. We want to give you the feel of actual uh, music hardware on something that wasn't made originally to do that, uh, but is very much capable of doing so. When I um, that's that's yeah great. Um, one of the things that I thought of when I first saw these was something that we covered earlier this year, um, which is the Soundcraft VI three thousand digital desk, which is a very large console that has um, touchscreens displays, but built in to the touchscreens has um, knobs, so that yeah. knobs built into it. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So you've got your console desk. It's in. Um, I suppose one way to find it would be through the audio podcast slash show slash 107 or search on our show notes or search on the internet for um, VI3000. And yeah, it's it's a large, large format mixing desk, but it has the knobs built in to the touchscreen so that the, the function of the knobs changes, but they are physical within there. And at the time, I was very excited about that as well. Um, but you know, this is a kind of smaller version of that, that, you know, the iPad equivalent is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's also because if you if you put it on, a, like, inside of a screen, you cannot change the location at any exactly, time. Yeah. So, um, for example, people that use their iPad in a really different way, for example, VJing or, or are still stuck to the same places where um, the tuning knob, you can change the orientation of the knobs um, at any at any given moment, whenever you feel like it. And I, I suspect, though you haven't, though I haven't found anything that remarks directly to it, that obviously, as this is just, pen, as just stand, essentially, you're you're just putting a additional kind of physical object on top of the kind of standard touch, you know, touch interface. That while you're building this with the the illustration photos have all been iOS kind of, you know, iPad orientated and things like that. There's really no reason at all why this couldn't be extended into kind of other kind of touchscreen phones and even onto kind of touchscreen computers. As well That's as they kind of come in this up. As long as they have a conductive screen, um, they will work. So, for example, my phone will work with this, um, which is great. Then I can like control my lights when I'm in my room from my phone. Um, so, I mean, 
yes, the possibilities are pretty much endless um, because they work on any touchscreen. So if um, I, let's, we'll get some details about the Kickstarter in a second because I think a lot of people are going to be really interested in that. But I, I just want it's, to, it's nice to try and tease a little bit into the future perhaps, but are you thinking that th this could be the first of maybe a couple of things? Could there be a tuner, a tuner slider or something like that in the future, do you think? Or? Well, we've gotten this question from a lot of people uh, through mail and through Facebook. Um, and of course, it's been a question that we asked ourselves from the very beginning because, um, because yeah, if you do or not, why not? go for all the different kind of uh, control methods you have on hardware. Um, right now, we're sticking just to, to the, the, the dial control, um, since we feel that that is the most, uh, it's also the most space effective of all uh, controls, so you can get the most out of your space. Um, but, yeah, of course, we're going to look into that. Um, but right now, we're only focused on the tuner knobs. Um, but the possibilities are out there, and we're definitely going to look into that once once we've had this Kickstarter. But for now, it's only this. We want to do this absolutely right. Excellent stuff. Cool. So fi finally, could you can you tell us about the details of the Kickstarter then? Um, if I understand correctly, it's due to start tomorrow? Yes. To, uh, I think for you that's going to be 4 p.m. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, then we're going to launch. Uh, we have... Uh, some awesome early bird things going on. I don't know whether you already noticed, but the first 50 uh, knobs are going to go away for one euro each. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be a bit of a race to get there. I think so. Um, yes. What's the normal? Uh, what are the other tiers that you're going to do within the Kickstarter? Okay, the normal price for one knob is going to be 11 euros, um, and uh, then. Uh, we have packages which are just multiples of that price, um, but every time we have uh, early bird specials for about, um, yeah, they're they're two euros cheaper than the normal ones, um, which of course racks up if you get more knobs at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then we also have a, a fan package, um, which is consists of two knobs, uh, two knobs, ten knobs, uh, two carrying pouches, uh, stickers, a shirt. Um, a Polaroid of us packaging your package. Uh, <laughs> and I think even, I didn't, did I mention the t-shirt? No, oh, fantastic, fantastic. You see, this is what we love about Kickstarters. We, we love the extra things you can get. It's, uh, that, that's the yeah, we're going to, we're going to expand on the extras. I mean, um, looking at the response we've gotten so far, um, we are actually quite confident that we're going to make our goal because it's quite a low goal, actually. Um, what what is the goal that you have? What the goal is, is twelve uh, twelve thousand and five hundred euros. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I think you'll get that. Yeah, I I, I'm I'm pretty confident too. So we're, we're <laughs> looking, of course so of course we're looking into stretch goals, looking at what's possible. Um, and I cannot tell a lot about this because of course we want to get the all the people all excited um, when we're low on the <laughs> on 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 the buzz, so to say. Um, but what we want to uh, Definitely look into is is collaborations with app makers, with template builders, um, to get tuner knobs to not just give people uh, um, these these rotary controls for their iPad, but the software behind it as well. Because um, for a lot of people that already work with that stuff, that's obvious. But for a lot of people that do not work with that stuff, that might be a little bit weird. So okay, right now I have a knob on my screen, but 
what do I control with it? So we want to go for something that's more a full package, but that's going to be the stretch goals. Mm. And of course, that's only if we get the money and get there, but we're confident that we'll get there, so we're definitely making plans. Well, you've got, uh, you've got three fans in the, uh, the members of the audio podcast, and we wish you all the best for your Kickstarter. And I imagine maybe one of us or multiple of us might actually uh, jump on there. I wanted to try and get one of the one dot, one of the one euro ones, but I can't. I'm going to be at the dentist. Oh, ouch! Ouch! <laughs> yeah, double uh, a double pain there. Oh well. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, if you want to find out more about Tuna Knobs, then the, the website is uh, tunadjgear.com. Though obviously you can find the link off the show notes for the audio podcast. Uh, Samuel, Samuel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you join us. Uh, thank you very much. It's, oh, thank uh, you, guys. It's been an honor for me, too. It, it's been incredibly exciting to hear more about it. And as Adam says, we certainly wish you all the best of that. And perhaps once you've uh, once you've got the Kickstarter done and you're in the production, maybe you'll be, be available to join us once more and tell us how it's, uh, how it's actually all worked out for you because it would be really interesting to find out more about it. Yes, maybe we can do a live review. Oh, that could be a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> there we go. I think we're, we're trying to hold you to that one. We're certainly give you a couple once it's, once it's through. Excellent stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yes. Thank you very much, Samuel. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, thanks a lot for your thank time. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Have a good show. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. So there we go. Uh, another one, uh, another high-quality audio podcast interview, and that is right on the money the day before the Kickstarter. You know, if, you, if you want your exclusive we, we were lucky, news, though. It's the we place to go to the audio podcast. It was it was supposed to happen yesterday, the launch for the Kickstarter, and uh, it got delayed by two days. Uh, so, but we uh, were, but we could have had a show last week, and it would have we would have had the interview last week if we'd had the show. I see. <laughs> yes, yes, that's we were, true. We, were all... we we do have some more people lined up for interviews as well, so uh, there will be some more interviews in the coming weeks. But as Adam suggested, this is indeed a jam-packed audio podcast because now Samuel Freeman has a review for us. I do indeed and for the benefit of the um, YouTube viewers I'm going to share the screen to the software in question and everybody else will hopefully be able to hear it. So here we go. This is the String Studio VS2 from Applied Acoustic Systems. Um, We've mentioned this on the last show which was two weeks ago and it is a synthesizer and it, I'm running it currently in standalone version but it can plug in to all the usual hosts and it's slightly unusual in that it uses physical modeling um, as its basic thing. So we've got three main views. We've got play, edit and effects. Edit is where most of the stuff happens. Inside here we can change the exciter and the geometry and various attributes of the string. Um, let's go back to play and listen to some sounds. Um, I'm going to go to one of my own presets which I've built together. The bank and program changes respond to MIDI and they're very easy to work with. Um, this is a bass type thing with an arpeggiator. <laughs> which when one note is played will do that, but if I play multiple keys, etc. Um, I could have that on latch, but I think I'll leave it for now. Um, 
and to show the versatility, switch to this kind of almost piano-like tone with effects. In the in the exciter here, we can see that we're playing with a, um, a hammer on the top, and we can change the stiffness. So that's the stiffness of the hammer. No, exactly. Yep. We could also change the stiffness of the string. Well, we could change the dampening on the string to change it quite radically. One of the things I found when playing with this in a larger context and sequencing through it is that it's not always immediately obvious how to change. I might hear, want to change the sound in a specific way, and because I'm not massively, I'm not hugely accustomed to the string model in here, it, it's not always. I can't just reach for a knob and turn it like I can with a lot of synthesizers. If it's a simple case of changing the filter settings or how the LFO is affecting the overall sound, that's okay. But there's a lot of dampening things all over the place. So in the termination, we've got the stiffness and mass, and we've got a whole damper section, which can be gated or not. There's dampening there. Um, yep. So it's not always obvious. It is really understanding how the models interact and then knowing which control actually. I, I've had similar problems with some of the physical modeling things they have in Logic, particularly the, the organ they have where it do, they try to recreate all of these sounds of, of a, an old scratchy organ. And most of the time I don't want them and it, it takes me about five, ten minutes to find the right dial to turn off because it's all about finding the right way into the model. So I suppose this is kind of like that. It is, but one of the advantages of the unusual controls in, in terms of is that you can then create sounds that are not obvious. So in, in music, you know, there's, I, there's different ways that you can enjoy the sounds. You can enjoy it because you understand how it works, or you can enjoy it because it's changing in a way that makes you go, well, how did they do that? And I found with automating some of these parameters in a DAW, I was able to get transitions that were kind of, yeah, I, I was pretty much just putting in curves at random just to see what combinations would sound like and ended up with some results that are quite, yeah, I didn't, because I was only new to it, I didn't know what I was doing, but what was coming out was really quite interesting. And with, with more experience, you'd be able to get your head around that and do some un unusual things. The, the effects that are built in are um, fixed as an equalizer and compressor, which you have the full controls in the effects pane, but under play, you've also got access to the gain of the EQ and the ratio of the compressor, um, as well as one parameter for the chorus, reverb, um, the chorus delay and reverb, with the full controls being here. Um, they're adequate, but not very. Yeah, it's if. Yeah, they're What's very. The they're, they're Is the chorus decent? And um, the chorus. Let's well. Let's see if we can hear it on this. Um, let's try something with more sustain. It's not very obvious on that sound, is it? Oh, well, the mix is the mix is off. On the on the chorus. See, I'm pointing that, at the screen, but you can't see can't where see. I'm pointing. I can now. Okay, I've switched it to one where we've got more mix there. Is that a negative mix control, a positive-negative um, one? 
Yeah, apparently. Oh, I wonder how that works. I wonder. I wonder what happens when you go negative. Is it a like a negative phase or something? Hmm. Possibly. One of the things that and um, we've got access. I think if you load it, it wouldn't switch to it. But from one of the things I did like about this is that you've got instant access to the manual, um, which I've now opened, but you're probably still not seeing. Um, no, we can't see it. Yeah. So that's um. So first of all, it looks. I'm, I'm saying it, it's. It sounds pretty good. I'm saying it's. I. You know, I mean, it. The sounds are certainly usable. There's a lot of quality in them as well. I often think there's. I always have this temptation, and I think Adam was kind of heading in that direction as well, to kind of start comparing the quality of bits that it shares with other things. You know, it's like we all have choruses that we use, and therefore comparing its chorus against that chorus is, is one of the ways that you can compare things. But I. I often think the problem with that. The thing to be cautious with about that approach is there's a good chance that the chorus that's available in there has been tail is tailored to work with the synthesis output from from the instrument as well. You know, there's always that tailoring and the polishing of things, and as a com as a consequence, you don't necessarily it's not really appropriate to do a comparison between the two of them because th this one is designed to augment the the synthesis output as opposed to treat of, of a material, and as a consequence, they will have you know. Made decisions in the design to to achieve that that kind of thing there as well. I That's think true. That's true. I, I think with a product like this, a lot of people sometimes the, the really interesting thing for me, and it was interesting to hear Sam talk about the use of the automation to explore this idea, is the the fact that you can get the you, you can create things that aren't actually kind of readily available. I'm saying in in this day and age of huge sample libraries and massive amounts of memory and storage available, the you know. Like if you want really, really authentic, if you want an incredibly authentic instrument sound, then you could just, you know, get a sample library of one and be done. That's that's a practical approach to take to that. But still, the, you know, these kind of physical modeling kind of systems are incredibly exciting for that moment when you think to yourself, wouldn't it be really nice if I could make the violin body turn into a turn, you know, become larger as as I play it or change change you know change the size of it or have the string tensions adjust and things like that as I'm actually playing them. And it's that, those distinctive unique property unique kind of features you can get through a modeling behavior through through synthesis and modeling as opposed to through sampling that I that, think makes it really exciting. I think that was always the promise of virtual of not virtual I was going to say virtual analog there, which is a kind of physical modeling. It's not physical modeling at all because there's no physics. So that's just modeling. Um, that was always the promise of physical modeling. I remember back when I really got into music tech and I went to college doing music technology and they had the Korg Z1 synthesizer and that was the whole point was that you could uh, dial up a, a kind of instrument and then, and then turn it into something that couldn't ever exist, the super instrument, an instrument that could only be generated by this thing. And that was at a time when hard drives weren't as big um, and maybe memory wasn't as large. So being able to do really high-quality stuff using sample banks was less possible. You'd have to have a really, really high-end machine to be able to do it. And physical modeling, you know, if you had the right kind of ASIC chip within a, a, a specialist pit of kit, you could get away with a decent physical model. So it's interesting, though, in the intervening time how... We've gone, you know, we've got more hard drive space, more RAM in the computers, 
So that's guided us more towards sample, really high quality sample banks. And physical modeling has been left behind because maybe it's just a, a bit too complicated to get those little details. Uh, Sam, how, how did you find the models? Did you think that they sounded really good, uh, kind of just as a baseline? Yeah, again, it took some getting used to. Some of it's really intuitive, like the body, for example. You can choose between the shape of the body um, and this slider at the bottom, you know, immediately, it, well, it's T-S-M-L-H, which for some reason I immediately interpreted as tiny, small, medium, large, and huge. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and comparing, comparing that to the manual, that is what it stands for. Um, yeah, it's really good. The kind of a guitar-type body um, really extenuates the bass, and you can kind of tune which where it where it becomes resonant. That kind of thing is very is very convincing. With the exciter and the string settings, although you can get very realistic sounds, you can very it's what's interesting about this as an instrument is not so much its ability to accurately recreate physical things, is that using the using the um, the algorithms that do describe that, but then taking it to extreme settings, you can create really unusual sounds and highly synthetic sounds that are not obviously string model based, but are nonetheless musically useful. Um, but yeah, I've kind of said a couple of things that are good about the manual, which is a lot of things, and it goes into a lot of detail about how different aspects of it work. There's lots of diagrams that kind of go beyond just how the instrument works to kind of the general theory behind what's going on. But there are some omissions, for example with the LFO, um, under the wave shape there are a bunch of different things including one called glitch which I found I quite I liked the sound of, but it's not described within the manual. Um, it describes the, ran the two random options but it doesn't actually say how that works. So there's, there's some omissions in there, you know, it's it can be faulted and, and again the LFO is only you can only route that to certain parameters within the the synth and for any you know more advanced modulation you would use the, the host application or um, mm. or MIDI input. But yeah. Okay Sam so let's it, it's crunch time. Um, do, do you like it? It grew on me. At first I wasn't convinced but after spending more time with it, yes, I do like it. And I, I understand there's some sort of promotion running running on it at the moment with it being newly released. Do you? There is indeed. It is currently available until is it the end of August? Um, the end of August, I think. And um, it's in the show notes. It's fourth of August. The fourth of August. So basically, pretty much the end of this month. It is available at 25% off, which makes it um, 89 euros, I think, or is $89. Um, mm. And there are some other ones there as yeah. well, some other uh, of the AAS instruments that have the same reduction applied, including the Ultra Analog VA2 Lounge Lizard with the, an electric piano model, um, and Chromophone, the Creative Percussion Synthesizer. Oh, that one's actually... Those have actually got 50% off. Oh, decent. Did you say 25%? Because I'm I'm on their website and they've got 50% off. Oh, right. Yep, sorry. It's the... I've, there you go. I missed it. It's 50% off. I'll have to change that in the notes. Yeah, 50% off the instruments, 25% off the sound banks. Yes. Which, and in in the category of, in, of liking these things, there is 
the um, if we look down on the same page here of the products from the Applied Acoustics website, this sound bank called Swatches is free. Um, yeah, it's a sound bank, but it's it's kind of a preset thing, and all of these, as far as I can tell, all the sound banks can be played in their own. Um, instrument which is free and I'm trying to look what it's called oh it's the um, is it not the AAS player the AAS player yep that's exactly what it is and I've given that a go as well um, and basically with that it's you know your preset surfing you can you there's no there's absolutely no control beyond choosing what sounds you've got from what bank but that's actually can be quite liberating in a way you know if you find a sound that works and you can always process it further with extra plugins um, or or it doesn't work, you know. I've yep. I recommend that as a kind of way of playing around. I, yep, I, I'm always going to look out for good quality free things in addition, <laughs> <laughs> in addition to stuff to spend money on, and that's that's in the category of that. Yeah. Excellent, excellent, excellent stuff. So that was a String Studio VS2 from uh, Applied Acoustic Systems, AAS, and they've got a promotion running on pricing until the 4th of August there, so that's, that's pretty awesome stuff. And Sam, I think in summary, you were quite happy. Yes. Well, if, especially at that reduced price, 50% off as it is, um, I think that, yeah. It's, Now's it's the time to go and get it. Now's the time to go and get it. If, if, if you're up for that kind of, uh, that kind of thing, and these kinds of things. So, so guys, shall we? It seems strange because usually we jump straight into the news, and it's uh, we're about halfway through the show now, and we're just about to start the news. <laughs> but here it is. Here it is. In, indeed. So, so in, in, into the news we go. Don't forget you can get the show notes at the audio podcast at uk slash show slash one two one. And don't forget that not all of the news actually makes it into the show nowadays. Because if something comes up and has a date on it and it passes before a show, then it won't actually generally make it into the show. So it's always worth checking not, out the website. You're basically saying that not all of the world's news makes it into the audio podcast. from. Week not even week. all of the audio podcast news makes it into the audio <laughs> podcast. That's what we're saying. That's what we're saying. What, what has got into the audio podcast news is this. Android gets audio. So, in, in, in possibly so. So <laughs> the, 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 the circumstance is this. A long-standing, um, a long-standing issue against the against Android, which was originally started, I think, 2012 or something like that, was a lack of USB audio support um, to in, into Android. Um, and then, if you want to, there's thousands and thousands of people who have added their online weight to the bug tracker, reporting it as a missing feature. <laughs> and a couple of days ago, um, a, a few months ago. There was a the, the the bug tracker had a had a change added to it from the Android team which said assigned, and then I think on the fourth of July if I remember correctly the I think it was the fourth of July the assigned there was a new entry on the bug tracker which said released, and if that is now that that is all there is that that is the news but if that is if that is correct and it, there's no reason why it wouldn't be correct what that means is that the Android stock kernel, as released by Google, now has class compliant USB audio support in it. Wow. And if you go to the link at the audio podcast notes, that's the audiopodcast.co.uk forward slash show forward slash one two one, and you scroll down to the first item in the news, the link is like incredibly 
like it's not news, it's not formatted, it's just like this mass of monotype text. That if you've never seen the book reports before, it's going to be a bit of a shock, yeah. yeah and it's yeah. at the very bottom right now, at the very bottom of the bug report, is the is, is the released statement. Now, ju just so people are clear, what, what does this actually mean? Um, it means, in real terms, right now, it means very, very little. Um, <laughs> this is the Google stock build. It, and even if even a Nexus device, even a even a Google kind of Google branded phone will not be immediately receiving this. So for anybody who's running on a Samsung or HTC device, this is not you know this is not <laughs> something that's about to appear tomorrow. And to be perfectly honest, Android has a tendency of leaving phones behind as opposed to trying to keep them running as iOS. So there's a very good chance that this will you you will never be able to plug a USB sound card into your phone. On yeah. this on your current device. On your current phone. What this does mean though is that over the next time that Google do a prop do a, a proper Android release onto the, the next version up, then from that point onwards there's a very that from that point onwards you it should be there. People will have to remove it if they don't want it to be there, which means that you will, you know, you will be able to plug a class compliant sound card in, and it works. Now, what, what, for people who are curious, what, what is a USB class compliant sound card? They're generally the stereo in, stereo out sound cards. That is yep. the the class compliant USB audio definition is two in, two out. That's what it is. Things like the um, those little Personas blue boxes that I raved about a couple of months ago. It's that. Yeah. It's that kind of but thing. It'll say on if you go to the web page for the uh, for the box you've got, it should say whether it's class compliant or not. But yeah, they tend to generally be the stereo and stereo art ones. So that's good. That means that yeah. Android people can finally get good quality in and out into the devices over the USB channel. So fantastic. Well, when you say finally. You mean could potentially at some point in the future? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I didn't caveat that. Good point, Scott Hewitt. Now, staying on Google, it uh, seems that they have bought a music streaming service. Well, they've probably bought loads of them, but they bought a particular one. Um, is this pronounced Songza? Indeed, it Songza. is. Yes. Yeah. So, and what's the what's the difference? What makes this one special? Why did Google buy this one? It's related to the human curated playlists, I think. So instead of having everything in terms of recommendation running on algorithms alone, they combine data points about the user and the time with human curated playlists in order to serve up music to listen to. So it's a slightly different uh, thing to Spotify. It's not as algorithmic. As yeah, th this is... Well, what it does is it takes your use, it takes information about you, the user, that you've consented to it having, and it takes contextual information about what you're doing or what what it thinks you're doing, what, what the kind of thing it thinks you're doing, and then it combines that, it provides that information, and then integrate and then relates that to human curated playlists of things like that as well. So it 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 should do it does thing it it could potentially do things like say if it's your birthday. <laughs> do different things, you know, give you something different based on it being your birthday. Or if you're commuting to work and there's a really bad traffic jam, it could automatically switch you on to something a little bit more relaxing. You know, like 
it, it could have those things. And you can see why this is a perfect, as, as I described those things, you can, it, it, the minute I read this thing, I was like, this is a great purchase because you can see how that would integrate with Google Now. Oh, well, services that they you can see how that would fit in with Google itself. I mean, Google is basically a pantheon of, of context-aware type technologies, really, isn't it? That's what the, their web is basically built like that. Yeah. And the, the, other, the, the, the other interesting part of the story is that um, Google were apparently hoping to pay about $15 million for it, and there is rumor that the price did go up significantly. But obviously, in comparison to the uh, last... Uh, the last company who bought a, a streaming music service. <laughs> um, that's a, that's a yeah, pretty but, good deal. No, no, wait, but that company also got headphones as part of the deal. So, um, yeah, it's not quite quite as straightforward. As... <laughs> but, yes, it's a large... How much was the Apple Beats? Was that two billion? No, it's like three, wasn't it? Three billion as compared yeah. to something more than 15 million. Yeah, okay. <laughs> But if I, the, um, I haven't actually tried songs there. I have to be perfectly honest. It is available on Android in the Play Store right now, so you can go give it a try if you, if you want to. Um, you know, I, I, there's things about it that are kind of interesting. I, I've tried a lot of the algorithmic music services and been disappointed by them all. Um, but and and that has an awful lot to do with the way that I like to listen to music and. Perhaps I'm incredibly unusual in the way I like to listen to like like the wow. way I like to listen to music and stuff. But I I don't think I particularly am, and I, and I just think it's really you know it, it's really hard to to get the algorithm right, which plays you the right songs repeat and with enough repeats. Because I like to listen to the same music, you know, over and over. And at the same point, I like to hear loads of new stuff at the same time as well. And it's really hard. You know, I mean, I've never found a service which has managed to get that right, managed to work out what song I want to hear lots and which songs I don't want to hear, I only want to hear once. And that's... Well, of course, what listeners must remember is that what Scott was really looking for was an algorithmic music service, i.e. a service that generates music algorithmically and you never know what's coming because it's all brand new and unique to his ears. So maybe one day that's Google will actually create something like that or buy something like that. But uh, yeah. just just pointing out there are different ways of of uh, of I can't think of the right word now. Uh, there are different ways of of um, getting the meaning from algorithmic music service. Let's move on, guys. Let's move on to <laughs> amps, amp modeling. Yep, there's um, two similar products in the news this week. This is the first of them. This one is from Audifex, Audifex, um, and it's called Amp Lion Pro. And this is a product, indeed. It's, <laughs> it's an update to an existing thing, but it's yep, it's there. It's available. It has lots of um, preamp models, power amp models, speakers, and microphones, and it's got the usual kind of position your virtual microphone in front of your virtual amplifier settings and stuff. But the interesting thing that caught my eye about it is that it's also got a track player built in, so you can play your own demos or other songs that you want to play along to, and you can control the speed of it if you're learning. And it's also got a recorder, so you can record your guitar in, and then play back 
that recording whilst tweaking the amp settings and stuff, which I think is a nice feature to have built right in there without having to mess around in DAW. And uh, what is this for? Is this a is this a an effect or is this a or, or what platform? That's what I mean. Um, Windows and Mac from I think it's from Vista up and from 10.6 up. I think it runs standalone and as a plugin, um, presumably VST AU. I don't have the information in front of me right now, but it might be something we revisit. Excellent. Mm. Um, of course, the next thing in the news is actually completely connected to our interview with Samuel earlier. So we get to jump that and talk about Egoist. Yeah, e Egoist. Um is a is from Sugarbytes and is a groove instrument which features a slicer arranger. Um, it's a, it's an extension to the base uh, the bass and beat synthesis engine and has the effectric effects unit included. Requires Windows XP or higher 10.6.7. Uh, oh sorry, requires Windows XP or higher or OS X 10.6.7 or higher and runs the VST AU RTS and AAX uh, on Pro Tools 10.3.5 and up. Excellent. Now I've got a question for you guys, right? So when you're doing the audio podcast, and you know we're in the live situation like we are now, uh, how do you how do you get your phone or your your tablet to just stay there right in front of you, like it's kind of being held by a kind of stand? Because um, I have n I have no idea, and I I usually just hold mine up like this, and I'm the, you know there must be a solution to that. Well, I use a um, configuration involving blue tack string and toothpicks, but um, <laughs> well, I use my, I, I, no. I use a I use a spindle of blank CDs, like a twenty-five stack blank CD spindle, actually, to prop my. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you guys wouldn't at all be interested in the IK Multimedia iClip Expand and iClip Expand Mini uh, stands for. IOS, are they just for iOS devices, I think, maybe, uh, which allow you to connect such devices onto microphone stands? Mm. I guess you're maybe. very proper to me. Oh, oh, well, we have to fix that link there as well. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, from, from, from IK Multimedia, uh, they, they clip on the microphone stands. They, they just screw on the microphone stands, or they will also screw on... Somebody told me they also screw on to lighting stands as well, which is just a little... If you're if you're into the well, video world, perhaps you have some lighting stands around as well. Which anything tube-like, I think this will fit. Yeah, on. music stands, I guess. Yeah. And is it just for iOS devices, or can you put in your your Android or Windows tablet type device? My take on this is that the iClip has been around for a while um, for my game multimedia, specifically for iPads, whereas the iClip Expand, which is the new thing we're talking about now, is adjustable and therefore would theoretically within uh, reasonable range, go to any tablet or any phone. Cool, cool. And I can actually, in the picture, in the notes, you can see the springs, so it, it kind of pulls apart and then clips back in. Oh, there you go. Maybe you get rid of uh, your spindler CDs, Scott. Yes, I could. <laughs> but then I'd need to buy a, another mic stand to attach it to. So... Oh, what? You don't have a spare mic stand? That's insane. Well, I, well, I do, but I'm not. See, well, Adam, I not everybody stop. needs um, golf club bags to carry all their mic stands around with. It's just, that's yeah, just... I, 
I have to admit that I haven't actually put a mic stand in that golf club bag yet. I haven't put anything in it. It's just sitting in my garage. Uh, okay, uh, moving on. Moving on from the shame. From the shame. The shame of, of having an, on a second-hand golf bag in my garage and it's just sat there and I haven't used it for anything yet. Not even for carrying your mic, st your mic stands. That's, that's unbelievable, Adam. Nope. This is completely unbelievable. Uh, I have to be honest, I, I accidentally moved away from the notes, so I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> uh, positive grid and the BIOS des desktop. Yeah. Yes, indeed, this is Amp Designer number two of the week. Um, <laughs> yeah. And number three over the last two weeks. Yes, it's true. It actually is. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know it? much about this one. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 um, but, but BIOS Desktop is is an amp designer. Positive Grid released it. It's a modular plugin. It isn't actually available yet. It's going to be available in Q3. So that's like the bit between summer and autumn. Um, but we all know that really when you say Q3, what you mean is is at some point, it's really the best way to consider it. Um, it's going to be available for OS X and Windows. It will be a VST, audio units, RTS, and AX, so all the normal formats we'd want. And the BIOS desktop is going to kind of, it is going to be their most realistic modeling engine, building on top of all the modeling that you've, that Positive Grid have already been doing. And we've been getting loads of um, iOS apps and things like that out of Positive Grid recently. And I think this is the, this is their focus shifting a little bit onto the desktop to deliver that kind of iOS, you know, the kind of functionality that's become established there onto the desktop, onto the desktop platform. Yeah. And they're looking for beta testers right now. So if you want to, if you want to get involved with uh, an early beta test on it, then as of June, 2014, they were looking for it. They were looking for one. Then June the 27th though. So it's just the end. It's because we had a week off. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the news, how we've lost track of the news. But we've come to the end of the news section now. And uh, whilst it is probably the most widespread audio podcast we've ever done, there is no other section. And I was wondering, but I thought it would get too long. I'm going to save my other guy okay, no. uh, up my sleeve. Well, okay. save, it, save it for next week. I've got a bit of plunder for next week as well. Uh, but let's get into this week's plunder. Starting with a new a new uh, a blog from Audio Technica, probably following the footsteps of Shaw and some of those other blog type yes. things. Uh, it's a, a new blog that will feature hints and tricks from top professionals about all things audio production, and also features on various products which I suspect will be made by Audio Technica. Um, are the sure are the hints? Is the hint to go and buy an Audio Technica something? Yes. Well, it. You, you were, it, was, it was nice that you referred to the Sure blog, actually, as we went into there as well, because the Sure blog is a prime example of how you do this really well, which is that every article essentially ends with the punchline, and you could go buy a Sure product about this. But at the same point, <laughs> the actual article contains things that are worth reading. So, and, and I don't mind that. It, it makes sense. It, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with people having a here's a discussion about an issue and as a consequence we've invented, you know, we have this product which addresses this issue. I think that's perfectly fine and I would be hopeful that Audio Technica will, and I suspect they will, will understand that that is the way to do this. So I thought it was a good idea. They've already got some stuff up there which is quite, which I thought was quite interesting worth a look anyway. So you know what? I plundered it. Yeah. Well, it's good to get information sources for the listeners. Very good indeed. Of course, another information source uh, that was created by us was 
our July, uh, how we podcast, it was actually the June how we podcast special, where each of us uh, over the uh, over three episodes uh, ex basically explained our podcasting setups, and they're quite different when you look at the three. And I guess what you've done, Scott, is stitched the three together so you can watch them all in a row. In, indeed, so so rather than having to go, if if you've missed the last couple of, if if you've missed a, a few shows, then we did do, as Adam said, a podcasting special about how the audio setups that we use to do the podcasts. And I'm always acutely aware that a lot of a lot of the the news section in particular, which sometimes is the longest part of the show, is very is is not evergreen in any way whatsoever, and essentially loses its value within a week or a fortnight. So rather than expect people to kind of jump their way through the audio, I thought it was much better to have a this is the How We Podcast special. And then I made it for July because while we recorded it in June, we didn't have a show last week and it was the 1st of July. So that was our missing gap. However, you would only have known that if you subscribe to us on either YouTube or iTunes or on one of the, you know, G-Podder or Stitcher or something like that. Because I deliberately just put it into the feed and uploaded it and carried on with my day. So there you mm -hmm. go. That was a, a special for our subscribers and for those of us who, those people who don't subscribe, then you, well, you'll find out about it now or however you find yeah. out about the things when you haven't subscribed to And finally, for show 121 of the audio podcast, we have Plunder of an article talking about the relative demise of professional recording studios. Yeah. It's quite a depressing read, actually. I haven't, I haven't read it all, so... I probably won't comment on it because I don't really know the details. Did you did you start weeping halfway through it, Adam? Was that why you didn't get to the end? Of it? <laughs> I started weeping halfway through, and it was the, the tears were getting onto my keyboard, and I was very concerned that it might corrode the um, the, the acid in my tears because there was acid tears was going to corrode the keyboard, and and, and then I take my computer to Apple, and they'd be like, no, that's that's acid tears corrosion, that's not covered by the guarantee, and I'd have a useless computer so that's why I stopped there we go if, you're, if, you're we're, being, if we're being serious what is what is the the nub of the article what is it what's the thrust of the article Scott <laughs> well it, it, it essentially what it was you know what, what they've done is they you know they've gone and found a random a random studio somewhere and spoken to them about what their experience currently is, and then from that extrapolated <laughs> what everybody else's experience is likely to be. It has a classic Guardian article feel to it. Um, I think that they may have gone to two or three rather than one, but that's the general gist of it. Yeah. So I so like that, and I think in in many ways it's a you know it, it's a it's a classic kind of mixed piece, is it really? Because obviously the audio the music industry is is kind of coming down from its highly profitable days and trying to work out how to become how to become profitable or return to those levels of profitability and a lot of it is you know it and they're talking about how there's significant squeezes on the amount of time that artists get to work and get you know get to record the amount of money that's available for post production work and at the same point the fact that the you know renewal cycle on hardware is obviously greatly accelerated now the days of the days of you know buying yourself a you know get getting a big SSL desk and leaving it there for 25 years are gone. You're you know having the costs of computing systems are constantly being added into there and all, all these sort of factors and whether the recording studio will or will survive. And I think they were a little bit, I 
you know, I, I think the answer is that it probably will, and people will probably continue to make music in their bedrooms as well. And essentially, that's been happening now for probably a decade and will probably continue to happen for a while. Yeah, I suppose you can see it as being before, before you could really make some really good quality music in your bedroom, there would have been loads of professional spec recording studios out there that, that well, not filled the gap, but that was just how it was done. And it's just a change in the technological background. And big studios are still needed for certain things. Like, you can't record big uh, symphonic things in your bedroom. You can't do certain things in your bedroom. You There will always be a need for specialist spaces and specialist equipment to do certain things. It's just that a lot of the basic stuff we can now do at home. So the smart business will tailor itself to that. It's, that's how I see it. We're not going to lose those specialist studios more completely. And, and certainly, and I think the, the other observation is that they, they list them, they, they talk about a lot of studios that have vanished, and it's quite interesting that there, there were a large group of studios whose existence was based entirely on the fact of, entirely on the idea of a shared exp shared experience in that somebody recorded seminal album X there. And as a consequence, you could go and record seminal out. You know, you could go record there as well, and that's like it's the same desk, the same tape machine. You know, all, all <laughs> that kind of thing. And our and, record's going to be as good. You, you know, the, and it's a little bit sad actually when you realise that there was um, there was a, a segment of the studio recording studio industry who were certainly kind of sitting or certainly selling on that kind of idea. Maybe not primarily, but it certainly was an added element to it and then when you when you realize that a lot of that kind of seminal recording stuff is you know 60s 70s you you kind of see how like the the aura of it not only has the hardware become incredibly outdated but the aura of the album and of the artist is also going as well you know it has also depleted as well and you see that i guess abbey roads abbey road is the kind of the, the, the kind of the one that has done particularly well, but they they have done, you know, what while they've obviously traded off the associations that they have, they've nonetheless done a lot of renewal, a lot of acoustic redesign, and they've established a lot of other relationships which kind of maintain them and keep them relevant to that point as well. Because I think the thing that's really interesting, Adam, is you, you rightfully kind of suggested there are some studios, some studios will survive because they can do things that you can't do in your you can't do in your bedroom. And it's surprising how many studio complexes aren't. I, I've been to a few as in a kind of consultancy role, and I've, the number of them that I've been to, which have been only about the size of a bedroom anyway, mm. you know. And I think they're the ones that are in real trouble. If you, you know, if if you're running a studio complex which has room for a drummer in the live room or room for another, you know, if if that's all you've actually got, then the you know I think it, the days are really numbered. But if you're able to take an orchestra or even you know a kind of a quartet or something like that in there, then you know you're likely to be able. You know there's always going to be. I think there's always going to be some work available for you on that basis. Of that well, the thing space. to remember is we're talking about equipment and spaces here, but probably the most important thing about making music is people, personnel, who does it. You know and. These these kind of iconic albums that they say, yeah, these were these were recorded in Abbey Road. 
Yes, okay, so the space has something to do with that and the equipment they used has something to do with that, but really it's about the musicians, the songs they've written, it's about the producer, it's about all these other people who have been part of that process and got this this thing out and maybe, I don't know, that I, I don't really rate, personally, I don't rate a studio because, oh, well, the Beatles recorded that. I don't care if the Beatles recorded that. I wasn't there. I wasn't part of it. Can you get, you know, can I get a good person to produce my stuff? Am I a good producer? Those count more. And I think you, a, a good work, a, a good producer can get over problems with not having the best equipment and this kind of stuff. So I, I suppose that's, that's, that's another thing to, to think go. about. There, there you go. With that, we shall draw what has been probably not our longest, but it certainly feels like it's not that it hasn't been fun. It's just, you know, we were a little late starting and we were all ready to go before. I don't know if we've hit an hour yet, so it won't be our longest show. I feel very drained, though. I, I just, I'm just. Shall I boil some? I, I can boil some eggs live right now and just to get us to the longer show if you want. Only if you do a binaural recording of it. Um, oh, no, I don't. I don't have my binaural equipment with me right now. Don't have now, your binaural so. boiling egg recording equipment with you. <laughs> no, I don't. Sorry, guys. Now that that would have been the show title had we not had a guest. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there we go. So that was the audio podcast. Are we having a show next Tuesday, guys? Uh, yeah. yeah. There we go. There is a show next Tuesday. Fantastic. Just need one of it to say yeah. And we can have one there. Yeah, it's fine. So there's a show next Tuesday. Um, I, there we go. That was the audio podcast. We should say thank you once more to uh, Samuel Vernberg of, um, you know, who came to tell yeah. us all about Tuna Knobs. That was awesome. Sam, thank you very much as well for your review on String Studio VS2 from AAA. No, AAS. Excellent stuff as well. Thumbs up. We were we were big fans of that sort of stuff there as well. I've been Scott here. You can get the show notes at theaudiopodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe if you enjoy the show. It's nice for us. I've had a blast. I'm Samuel Freeman. Back next week. And I am Adam Yanch. I will continue to be Adam Yanch for next week. And we will catch you all then. Have a good week, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.